Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we always encourage you to think deterrence. Now today, sitting in for Jim Petrosky is his much younger peer in the nuclear engineering world, and that would be Robin Hutchins. And then, of course, as always, Curtis McGiffin is with us today for our Nuclear View Roundtable discussion and today's topics. Robin, you know, for a, a nuclear engineer, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, nuclear engineers don't write a lot of op-eds generally. And you, no, they do not. you are kind of on a hot streak in the last few months. I think, um, unfortunately, I may be your downfall because if you hang around with me enough, you're going to write a lot of controversial op-eds and... I think as of Monday, you had a new one come out. Will Russia use battlefield nuclear weapons? Controversial topic, pinned by you. We'll talk about that today. And then Curtis, you, myself, and Jim wrote an article, Inconvenient Facts for the Disarmament Community. Both Robin's article and our article, available at Real Clear Defense. And of course, as always, thanks to Dave Craig for running that for us. So, Robin, let's talk about your piece first. So tell us okay. the gist of your argument. So basically, in this piece, I kind of highlight the fact that a lot of the American public and probably people around the world have this uh, skewed mindset uh, that if a nuclear weapon is used, then it's the end of the world. It's disaster zone for miles and miles hundreds of millions are dead and reality is if these nuclear weapons are manipulated and um, can have a scaled down yield and can be deployed either in a higher altitude burst or um, in a altitude that would limit destruction then they actually have pretty limited effects and in this paper we demonstrate that uh, i believe it's within 24 hours um, a blast zone is now enterable for troops or emergency responders to enter that area. And so in response to that, I kind of highlight the United States really doesn't have an appropriate response in their toolbox to, um, you know, in the case a retaliation strike is needed, but overall just to deter the use of those small yield, uh, low yield nuclear weapons. We don't have that. And so that was kind of what I was highlighting in this paper. Yeah, you, you bring up some good points, you know, just to sort of hit on what you said, you know, you talk about, let's say, a 10 kiloton yield. I think that doing those calculations, the air burst was for a, what we call a fallout free detonation would be about 600 feet or so. And so that's uh, but yet you still get, and this is one thing that I, I don't think many, and this is of course, one of your main points is that most Americans don't understand that you can use nuclear weapons to and tailor the effects 
immaculately because we have such good software that allows us to take into account uh, the the VNTK. That's the scores of how we rate buildings and structures, and we can use focus blast pressure. We can, you know, if we if we want something that focuses radiation, we can focus radiation. We can flatten things but not irradiate things. We we have all these ways that we can detonate weapons. And, you know, these low-yield weapons, because they're even more sort of flexible for using them for specified purposes, and you don't have to turn things into these huge, you know, wastelands. And one of the things you didn't talk about, but I've noticed as I've heard people sort of make mistakes in thinking through nuclear and nuclear radiation is they'll equate what happened at Fukushima or what happened at Chernobyl as sort of being the same thing that happens with a nuclear weapon. And they're totally different. Could you maybe sort of hit on, you know, the, these sort of radiological differences and why it's important never to conflate the two? Yeah, so uh, if you, let's just use Fukushima, for example, um, with that reactor, um, with that earthquake that then caused that tsunami to come on shore um, and then pretty much flood out the ability to cool that reactor, um, it literally melted through the floor and just created this uncontrollable nuclear reaction that was um, just emitting all of these particulates um, into the air that were then actually spreading all over the world. Um, I actually did, uh, from academic use, uh, a paper looking at the dose received by those in Eastern Europe from Fukushima over, you know, a 60-day-long period when it was inhaled into their lungs, all the iodine, for example. And uh, it was pretty clear within 12 days from the disaster, there was heightened levels of iodine in the air. Um, In these controlled blasts, um, much of that can be contained. You're not going to have the same level of distribution. Um, or just anywhere near the magnitude of disaster that you would in those reactor situations. Um, And not to harp on the reactors too much, today's modern technology is quite safe. Yeah, yeah, and it's like with these older reactors, because Fukushima and, you know, Chernobyl was was a Soviet reactor, so they were not particularly careful with safety. But these suckers, you know, they, they continue, you know, the, the fission process continues for years. So it's not an instant blast of the sun. It's this slow fissioning of material that's constantly irradiating. And they're trying, you know, they try to encase, like with Chernobyl, they tried to encase it in concrete. And, you know, so it's, they're just like totally different. So people shouldn't make those mistakes of saying, well, look at how bad, you know, look at the radiological problems 40 years later with Chernobyl and think that that's what the same thing is with a nuclear weapon. Cause they're just not the same. So it was, it was a great article. Curtis, what'd you think of Robin's article? Did you have any questions about it? No, I, I want to just add some context. And first of all, Robin, thanks for joining us. Robin's a senior analyst here with us at NIDS and, uh, and, and she is uh, a, a budding uh, expert, I think, in this field, and it's going to be a, a long career uh, in this. I think the most powerful part of Robin's article uh, is is that it it clearly conveys uh, that nuclear weapons are usable on the battlefield. 
And not only, not because, you know, some of our listeners and certainly many of our critics will might argue that, hey, um, you know, we're all advocating for the use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And the answer, the actual answer is we're not, obviously. But what we're saying is, is that if we know this, the Russians know this. And this is why Russians and, and, and maybe even the Chinese think of low-yield, tactical, non-strategic nuclear weapons, whatever descriptor you want to use, are just another capability in their toolbox, a bigger bomb, so to speak, one that has a political ramification more so than a conventional bomb. And when you can actually use it and get the political effect from it, but actually not get the environmental effect, uh, then that adds another uh, potential for its, uh, its usability um, as, as Putin gets more and more desperate. That's the context I wanted to add to this because I think Raman explained this so very well uh, in that the weapon is usable. It doesn't actually, you know, one little weapon doesn't make all of Ukraine un- un- unoccupiable. And in fact, within days or, uh, or a week, it's completely occupiable. And, uh, and, um, and, but that political message will, will last a lot longer, I guess, than the poisoning of the, of the atmosphere around it. Yeah. Good point. So thanks for writing that, Robin. It was useful. Oh, you are welcome. (laughs) I've actually gotten a few comments from folks that have liked it. So, uh, you know, well done. And it's, it's important that we sort of say these things repeatedly and in as many venues as we can, because helping the public to understand fact from fiction and, you know, where the actual reality sits is really, you know, it's, it's important. And so that's, you know, one of those sort of key reasons why the article is as important as it is. So the next article was, was the, came out earlier today. So by the time the listeners will, will hear this podcast, It'll be next week, and hopefully they'll have had a chance to read it. But the point of this one was that we looked at eight mistakes or eight sort of disinformation, false facts, that the armament community, disarmament community makes. And Curtis, you want to kick us off? What was the first point that that we were trying to make? Well, so Adam, I think... Uh, you know, we, we sort of put collusion together eight arguments. It could have been 10. It could have been 15. could have been five. We kind of felt like eight was the right number. <laughs> um, I'm sure um, our, our naysayers will call it the crazy eights. I'll, I'll give them <laughs> that one right now. Um, but uh, as we look at this, you know, it is we have to continue to uh, to tell the story about uh, uh, the inconvenient facts, as we call this article, uh, that sort of dis the disarmament advocates, um, because I think disarmament is dangerous. And we at NIDS believe that disarmament is a, is, is a danger to peace and stability in the world. Uh, and we've got 75 years of history on our side. And so uh, I, I think if we lay this out, we look at this. And so, so I'm going to kick us off here. And for Adam and Robin, you guys can, can co- do color commentary here. Uh, but our first one uh, was that uh, that 
you know, Russia and China are going to be near peer adversaries. A lot of folks to, you know, our, our, our disarmament friends will say China's not a threat right now. And you're right. China may not be a threat right now. Well, well, well hold on, hold now, on. Let me, let, let me interrupt you. Yeah, you do this every week. And <laughs> let me challenge. First of all, I hate the term near peer because the Russians are not a near peer. The Russians are a peer who is superior. I mean, they have they have a two to three thousand non-strategic nuclear weapons. They have the same strategic nuclear arsenal we do. By what measure are they a near peer? They're clearly superior to us. So that's that's misinformation. And so I would say okay. to you, Curtis, for saying that, Jane, you ignorant slut. I don't know who this Jane is and why <laughs> is she so ignorant? <laughs> but, you know, so uh, that's a problem. And then this idea that that the Chinese arsenal, which we sort of think is a, maybe a few hundred, we don't quite know, but we're guessing. And, you know, there's a great article that came out in, Yusenka's journal uh, came out maybe a few weeks ago that written by John Swiegel and Chris Yaw that says, Hey, we think the Russian or the Chinese have a lot more weapons grade plutonium than, than we previously thought. And therefore they could have a lot more weapons than we think, because that's been one of the main factors that we've tried to judge the size of their arsenals, how much weapons grade plutonium we think they have. And so they say, hey, what you think now and what the IC is, the intelligence community has said, is probably wrong. And so they very well could be right. So the Russian or the Chinese could be more dangerous than we think they are. And they're going to be, a, you know, by any stretch, they're, they're building to parity, if not superiority. So in a decade or less, we could have a superior Russia who may break out of New Start and has the capacity to build a thousand warheads a year. We could have a, a superior or peer China. And we've got Kim Jong-un who says, I'm going to build an arsenal comparable to the Americans. And so it's, it, it may not even be a tripolar system. It could be a, a quad system with three adversaries versus us. And we're going to be the small boy in the room. Well, that may be, uh, and, and in the interest of getting through the eight of these, uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep us moving here. Uh, but what I would say to your point is, is that our intelligent assessments over the last three years have changed from a 300 to a 500 to a 700 to a 1000 to a 1500 estimate publicly. Yeah. And that tells me we don't know how, we don't know what we it don't. is. And we keep guessing and we're taking these intelligent guesses. And the, the, but what we have to understand is we know that the STRATCOM commander just came out and said they now have more launchers uh, than we do. Well, they're not building those launchers, right, to, 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 to dry the clothes on, right, like, a, like the treadmill in your office, Adam. They <laughs> actually are going to use these things, okay? And so um, uh, they're going to create – so the chances of them building weapons to fill these, these launchers are real, um, and the guesstimates are only going to continue to increase. And uh, we've got to figure out how we're going to deal with this. And then you add to the final fact that there is this, this no limits, quote unquote, um, relationship that is now uh, uh, birthing over the last year and sort of refined, uh, sort of refined itself over the last three days, uh, given at the time of this podcast. 
between Russia and China. Well, what does no limits mean, right? We know that they're talking about sharing technology for NC3, their version of NC3 and an early warning, which means they want to get to a launch on warning posture. We know that uh, that there is likely going to be the movement of precursor um, nuclear material uh, between the two countries. This is going to speed things up. Uh, and so there's an interest. There's an interest on both sides uh, in this era. And I think this is a problem that we are we are still suffering from the ostrich syndrome. And, and if you want to know what that is, Robin, that's when Adam sticks his head in the sand and pretends like nothing's going on. That's when I stick my head in the sand and pretend <laughs> that the Astros are not going to win the World Series again go. this year. That's what I'm pretending. Very so what good, was your take good. on it, Robin? I mean, you know, this we, we've been having this discussion and you've been patiently listening to us. But, you know, what's your yes. take on it? Uh, I mean, you're you're our you know, Jim's the engineer. Now you're the engineer. What's what's the engineer take? Well, I don't know if I have an engineering perspective to offer this, but one thing that when reading through this and um, kind of incorporating news that I've seen over the last few days, um, China brokered peace in the Middle East, and now they've moved to China or to Russia, and they're trying to broker peace with Ukraine. It kind of looks like China's trying to step up and be the adult in the room, and they're trying to kick the United States and you know whoever else wanted to be the adult in the room to the curb. That's from my perspective, yeah. what I got from point two and how you displayed yeah. that out. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like China's asked us if we want a Rochambeau and they, they've said they clearly want to go first. So I, I definitely agree with you there. And I think we've said, yes, right, Adam, you can since go you first. Interrupted me, <laughs> all right, since you interrupted me, we'll go to the next one sure. and I'll ask the second one here. All right. So the second thing we said was, was that modernization program is not increasing the size of the nuclear force. There's a lot of folks out there who believe that by modernizing, uh, we're actually going to add to the force. What do you say to that? Well, I would say that as the Biden administration has clearly said, regardless of what the Russians do, we're going to maintain new start numbers. And so for those who would argue that, you know, we're increasing the size of the arsenal. You, you know, you need to take that up with President Biden, who has been very, very forceful that he will not grow the arsenal and he is even cutting capabilities. So like he's getting rid of the hedge. He is um, getting rid of slick them in the submarine launch cruise missile so I think it's pretty clear that the president has no intention or plan or desire, nor does anybody in his administration to grow the nuclear arsenal. So that would be, that's a red herring with no evidence to support it, right. by the way. That's right. So we know in the NPR, there's a cut to, there's a desire to cut the Slickham end. There's a desire to eliminate the B-83 uh, only megaton weapon in our arsenal. Uh, to eliminate the hedge. These are all things we've talked about in previous podcasts. Um, we know that the, the submarine recapitalization is actually two fewer submarines um, over time. So while the missiles, the Sentinels are a one-for-one -one swap and the, and the bombers are basically a one-for-one -one swap with regard to the nuclear-capable versions per new start, 
um, uh, then you know it's hard to make the argument that we're increasing um, uh, our capability in that regard. I think the one thing I would say is if you're, if you're measuring capability is that by replacing old F-16s as, as uh, a dual-capable aircraft in Europe with stealthy F-35s, you may be uh, adding some, some capability with regard to uh, nuclear delivery in Europe. But I think for the most part, uh, it is a red herring. Yeah. So, Robin, anything to add on that? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, working at KCNSC and actually going through the weapon, uh, you know, refurbishment and conversations of the modernization versus refurbishment, they always taught us. Russia, you know, we all started off with like a 1960 Corvette. And uh, we have every 13 years paint our color back on the vehicle, rub off the rust and uh, slap on a new cherry red. Russia every year goes up and every 13 years or so re-ups and gets the newest, baddest car on the market. We're driving around in the bones of a 72 Cadillac or something, and they're running around in a Ferrari. So I, I kind of agree there with your idea that uh, just completely different playing fields. Yeah. Very yeah, good. absolutely. All right, over to you, Adam. Okay, so third, we say canceling the nuclear-armed submarine launch cruise missile results in a capability gap between the U.S. and its adversaries. It does not decrease tension between the superpowers who already possess sea-based theater nuclear weapons. So, tell us more about Slickerman. I think it's a good one for you, Robin. Start on that one. Why do we need Slickerman? Well, I think just having that flexible response, you know, wherever, um, you know, having, being able to deploy um, you know, a deterrent wherever the world we need it. Yeah. Submarine is there to do it. And that, and then the, the key idea here is that it's a low yield variant. And so therefore when the Russians have all these, you know, low yield, these two to 6,000 theater, you know, low yield nuclear weapons, some of them are low yield, some are higher yields that what is our response? Well, slick them in was going to be that response and then, you know, the, the disarmament community says, well, but you have the SLBM, the Submarine Launch Ballistic Missile, and the W76 Mod 2 low-yield variant. And, and the, you know, so we've, we've got a handful of them, right? These are, you know, these are in the couple dozen number. So it's a very small number compared to the two to 6,000. And then, you know, if you know much about submarine warfare, shooting off a onesie of something is it's it's not the optimum way to to deploy nuclear weapons from a submarine. And so therefore, and and it also it doesn't look like a low yield variant. So the Russians or the North Koreans or whomever, you're counting on them to pick up the launch, follow the launch in, let it detonate do some battle damage and say, hey, that was less than 10 kilotons. That wasn't a SLBM W76 warhead. Uh, it was the Mod 2. And we, therefore, let's respond differently. And you're counting on them to do that. 
And I'm not 100% sure that that's what the Russians, the Chinese, or the North Koreans are, are going to do. So this idea that, that the SLBM, the 76 Mod 2, is, a, is all you need, or even in Europe, the couple hundred B61s on aircraft that are not, you know, they're not on a 24-hour operational readiness plan to where they could be up and gone in a day. You know, that that's not how we operate in Europe because we have no declared adversaries. So therefore, we don't have a war plan and we don't, you know, we're not planning to fight the fight tonight. And so therefore, you know, something like slick them in it really has a utility for the United States to say, hey, we have comparable capability. If you want to go low-yield theater nuclear conflict, we can do that too. And therefore, I would argue that's a great deterrent. I don't know. What do you guys think? So let me let me throw in on this. Um, uh, to your point, Adam, uh, if you launch a submarine-launched ballistic missile, uh, there's no way it has the same profile. Uh, if it has, you know, multiple warheads in, in hundreds of kilotons as it does a small warhead. So uh, I don't know how anybody would tell the difference. Uh, so I think that is an escalatory move that has to be considered. Um, I would also argue, uh, most of the disarmament folks will say that we don't need slick them in because it's destabilizing. It looks like we want to fight a nuclear war. And I, to this, I would say, no, 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 it is destabilizing to not have the matching capability. And if it were destabilizing, why is it okay for the Russians to have this capability and not us? Why is that stabilizing in their mindset and Congress's mindset and anybody else's who's thinking about this, but it is somehow destabilizing if the United States gains a capability that the adversary already has. And so, uh, and then I would, I would sum this up with, with Robin's brilliant conclusion in her piece where she says, and I'll quote, the only way to deter the, uh, the use of one uh, or a small number of low yield battlefield nuclear weapons by Russia is for the United States to have a toolbox with similar options. Well, that is the slick them in. And right now yeah. we have an empty toolbox. And that's not good if we're uh, if we're going to work, we're going to war. Yeah, Robin, did you want to add on? Yeah, he he stole yeah. my own point <laughs> from me. Oh, you see, <laughs> but I yeah, that's exactly where point. I was going with it. No, that's exactly where I was going with it. Of just uh, you know, it's a tool in the toolbox. And I actually had somebody uh, message me about my own article and. Um, we're talking about this statement where I say the only way and kind of brought into the right. cross deterrent, cross domain deterrence argument of, well, what about, um, you know, if somebody were to use this, why can't we come back with, um, you know, a cyber attack? And you just mm -hmm. kind of look at them and you're like, that doesn't make much sense. If, if you're, if I'm walking down the street and a guy tries to steal me or, you know, grab me, kidnap me, I'm not going to say, excuse me, sir. Uh, I need to call the police. Can you can you stop for a moment? It's just equivalently not a good response, not an appropriate response. Right. Yeah. Or well, you carry can, your analogy you... further. If they're trying to grab you, the answer is not to start launching a cyber attack from your phone. Uh, it is to fight back, <laughs> right, with a with an in kind exactly. response. 
Uh, and exactly. so uh, this, you know, people like this only understand strength. And so, um, you know, this idea, and, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but asymmetrical responses to a very political uh, calculation of, of breaking the nuclear taboo and, and detonating a weapon uh, is, is something that has to be very carefully calculated. Uh, and that's why I have always said that in actuality, what, what, um, what, what America and, you know, the government or whatever, however you want to couch it, uh, fears most uh, is not the actual detonation of a weapon in, in, in or around the Ukraine. It is the decision that the White House must face the next day. That is what they fear the most because they don't really, I think, know how they're going to do this. Because if you respond in a conventional manner or in a, a, that may be viewed as weakness, and if you respond with an ICBM, that is escalation. And so if you don't have the tool in the toolbox to respond in kind, you cannot respond from a position of strength. That's just, I just think that's how the, these, uh, these adversaries, these bullies, these coercive uh, powers uh, view this world. So now, hey, Adam, let's move on to the next one. Yeah, for the sake of time. I want to keep ahead. you moving. We're running out of time. We're going to get through four of these, man. Well, so then let's go go quickly. So the you know the the advers the disarmament community consistently says, well, listen, China's no threat. They have a no first use policy. So as long as we don't nuke them, they won't nuke us. And for any for you know for the the China folks out there, the China hands. If you're familiar with active defense, their strategy that they've had for, you know, 30-ish years or so, active defense means that it's okay to go on what we call the offense, and they would call an active defensive policy. So you can strike first if you think the Americans are going to attack out of Japan, you can, you can attack, uh, you can attack them first. And so, therefore, that would mean that it's perfectly, you know, consistent with their no first use policy to use a nuclear weapon first if it's perceived as a defensive act. So, therefore, I mean, that that's pretty straightforward. So that's point number four. Point number five, turn it over to you, Curtis. What say you? So for the fifth one, American adversaries have no interest in following the West's example. Um, uh, our adversaries are not altruistic. They are not looking to, uh, to, uh, to bend their or ignore their own national interests in favor of a rules order, uh, international situation that they by default are unhappy with. This is why they are behaving the way they behave. They do not like the international system as it is defined today, which is why they're trying to redefine it. And so by continuing to try to assume that they will fall in line, play by whatever rules we want to call great competition, great power competition to be, uh, I think I talked about this in a previous podcast. Um, in the end, uh, what we have is really uh, adversaries that have their own international interests, which are hegemonic and revanchist and, uh, and, 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 and based in, uh, realism and, and balance of power kind of politics here. And, uh, if we're going to continue to hope and, uh, going to our other article, Adam, uh, hopium, uh, with Christine, 
um, if we're going to continue to hope that they're going to somehow have uh, come along and and be a part of the international uh, society, I just don't just don't see that happening. We need to address the problem as it is. How do you see this one, Robin? I mean, are are we just well, being too hard on the Russians and the Chinese? Well, so I actually thought your point four was. Uh, my favorite point throughout the entire paper. And I think that might be perhaps because, um, you know, the act of defense, like you went and uh, went ahead and defined is not something that, um, you know, just the average uh, American would ever think about because we have this Orientalism view. We mirror ourselves to our adversary and we just assume that they think very similarly to us versus uh, really understanding their strategic culture and how they view this preemptive self-defense. And so whenever I hear this term, I kind of uh, think of uh, The Office when Jim and Dwight are in their continuous battles back and forth during that one episode. And in the interviews, uh, Dwight looks to the camera and he goes, I always act in self-defense, sometimes preemptive self-defense. And I think that just perfectly epitomizes um, China's outlook on the world where they just have to be just antagonistic enough to lure their enemy into a um, desirable position and manipulate the situation so that they still look like they're in defense. So that was my favorite point throughout the entire paper that you guys made, just highlighting that preemptive self-defense. Um, and kind of going off of point five here, you kind of you highlight China and Russia want a world that allows them to bully their neighbors. And so I think once again, going back to Chinese strategic culture, really understanding that they have this parent-child view of the world where even with their own citizens where they feel the need to punish their citizens like a parent and teach them and evolve them. So I think highlighting that point was really great. Yeah. I mean, you, you make a, first of all, yeah. by virtue of bringing in the office to a podcast that uses frequent Saturday night live references that you, I mean, you, I, you got me off guard now cause I'm not a big office <laughs> fan. I, I, you know, so, uh, uh, I, I got to catch up on the office to get my own versions of, of quips here, but you know, it, it, I think you pretty, pretty solidly sort of highlight the problem. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well said. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. I would just add to this real quick that uh, any you know, nations who are willing to kill millions and millions of their own citizens are likely not to care a whole lot about their adversary citizens. I think we can make that assumption. Yeah. Yeah, and it's always done for it's always done for the good of the society, right? Because they think in societal terms. Right. So points. All right. Six. So Robin, let's go on to the sixth one here. I'm gonna jump over to, to this one. The world is not on an inevitable path to nuclear disarmament. What do you think about that? Are we are we or are we not inevitably going to disarm? I think that in a fairyland of which I think Margaret Margaret Thatcher said it best, uh, a fairyland of a disarmament is nothing but a mere fantasy. I, you know, butchered that quote, but that's kind of the idea here. It's great in, re in uh, mm -hmm. an idealistic point of view, but in reality, it's it's impossible. Yeah, I agree. 100%. And we're we're going the opposite way. I mean, the reality. I mean, the you know, you as an engineer are pretty good at math. And the math uh, on, you know, even Hans Christensen can't disagree with us that the numbers are going in the wrong direction. The, the you know, the, the Iranians are enriched to 86%, something like that. 
And so they're close yep. to weapons grade. They could break out at any point. And if they break out, then we're going to see proliferation across the Middle East. Kim Jong-un has said, I'm going to build an equivalent arsenal. The Russians are poised for a breakout of New Start. The Chinese are clearly rapidly expanding their arsenal. So this, you know, I, I almost wonder if the disarmament community is making a last stand and they're doing it at the laugh factory, but they don't realize they're in a comedy club and that they're actually telling jokes. Uh, I, you know, that's sort of, you know, they're trying to be like a straight man and, and they're just, you know, you can't help but laugh at them. Go ahead, Curtis. So I would add to this, you know, if as China continues to build up, what does India do? Because they don't get along very well. So if That's India feels like it's got to add to its arsenal to account for that buildup, then Pakistan will react accordingly. Uh, and so we see a number of these prolifer- proliferation. We know that the, uh, the, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has said if, if Iran nukes up, they will too. Um, and, uh, and, and so forth. South Korea... Uh, the president of South Korea has made some overtures to maybe perhaps wanting their own nuclear weapons. So we are clearly not in a disarmament uh, mood uh, nuclear-wise in, in the world right now. And that is largely due to um, to our, our, our problem children out there, I think. Um, hey, let's jump over to the seventh one, Adam. I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, or the uh, assertions that American nuclear policy is similar uh, to Russian nuclear policy is disingenuous and untrue. What do you think? The Russians view nuclear weapons the same way we do as sort of a, a taboo um, type of idea that we, you know, we need to be mutually vulnerable and these sorts of things. No, I'll be brief. The answer is no. <laughs> uh, they are particularly low yield weapons. This is something Robin, and actually Robin talked about Russian doctrine in her article. And the Russian doctrine, she and did. she, if you if you read her article, she gives you a link to it, and it's it's pretty clear they believe, and they've said mm-hmm. that they're usable on the battlefield. They have a very different perspective than we yeah. do. We don't even have ones for the battlefield, much less the ability to use them, or the desire to use them. They have them, and they will use them, and they've said so. Period. How about number eight? Yep, I'll just jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Robin. I'll just jump in and highlight really quickly. Um, he frequently talks about how he would use um, nuclear weapons in the pol- in their policy and in their defense of their um, entities, not just exigent existential threats, but just normal execution of desired goals. Go on. Yeah. Yep. How about number eight? History shows that a world free of nuclear weapons is not a safer world but one that is more dangerous. Curtis, over to you. Yeah, so uh, this was probably my my favorite. Robin had hers. This is probably mine. Um, you know, we talk a lot, um, uh, led by the nuclear disarmament uh, community, that we, we, that a world will be better without nuclear weapons. We have seen a world without nuclear weapons. Look from 1944 left on the calendar, right? And it's it's responsible for millions of tens of millions, scores of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of death uh, uh, over the time due to from conventional deterrence or just conventional wars, six to seven great power wars per century. 
We're now, uh, it's now been 75 plus years without a great power war. Um, I would argue that the world we've seen without nuclear weapons is ugly and brutish and bloody. And what we have seen since 1945 is a world without global nuclear or global war, if you will. Uh, It doesn't say there isn't any war, but the numbers are quite clear in the percentages of lives not lost in the presumption that these kinds of conflicts conventionally would have continued in great power conflict. And so it is the, you know, in John Gaddis's idea of the long peace that has said basically that given the credit to nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, and the fear of escalation that has kept these conflicts that do occur small. And this is why we are at, you know, a critical time uh, with the way Russia is, is behaving uh, uh, with the new, with the potential for nuclear weapons in the Ukraine, this isn't to say it's going to happen, uh, but we know that 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 coercive uh, threat has occurred um, and will probably continue. But uh, but uh, I, I always ask my nuclear counter, my nuclear disarmament community, how many human beings have been killed in an act of violence by a nuclear weapon since 1945? Since 1945, the answer is zero. But the number of human beings killed by bullets and bombs and gas and all of the other things, economic sanctions, et cetera, are millions. And I would argue that maybe we're trying to ban the wrong wrong weapon. These are weapons of peace. And uh, we here at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies are probably one of the few organizations that thinks about this problem in that manner. What say you, Robin? Yeah, I thought that uh, your quote, since 1945, 1945, no human has been killed by nuclear weapons. I thought that was just a you know, very simple, but a clever assessment to make. Um, it was just very clever, something yeah. I had never personally thought of. And then how often do we use, how frequently do we use nuclear weapons? We use them every day. Every day. Every, every day, day, my friend. Every day to keep the peace. We do. Now, of, of course, we are over time. We've gone a little long, so hopefully you, the listeners, will enjoy the extra time at no extra charge. So uh, you're it's welcome. Like our Encore lighters are going off. Yeah, you're welcome for, for, you know, and for Kiwi out there who will be listening as he's running his ultra marathon. Uh, we just want to give you a little bit of extra stuff to think about. And for the rest of you listeners... Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. And thanks to Robin Hutchins, our resident nuclear engineer, and Curtis McGiffin, an all-around good guy, and me, just a simple Astros fan. That's all I am. And an Alabama fan, so go Tide. You know, their Sweet 16 is Friday night. So with that... We always want to encourage you to think deterrence.